Well, good morning, everybody. Just want to declare this is our week, believers. This is our week. It's our opportunity to, to celebrate what is the most important event in history. And, uh, you know, the world's doing a pretty good job of uh, masking this week. And, you know, we got bunnies and eggs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I like bunnies and eggs, but uh, that's not what this week is about. And we have the opportunity to celebrate uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus and all that he did to secure our salvation and following the will of the Father. And so we are glad about that, aren't we? We have an opportunity this week. We've set up a lot of things here this week so that we could participate, participate and celebrate together. Uh, Tuesday mornings, our first opportunity. If you have a, if you have the uh, this morning's bulletin, all the times and events are on there for your convenience. But I would just call attention to the fact Tuesday mornings, guys. Uh, we are praying together as elders and would like to invite you to come. And as uh, often we do with men's events, there will be some food uh, to encourage your participation. Uh, to reward you for getting up a little earlier to, to come. But that's a great time. We as elders enjoy that time we have together and would, would love for you to be able to come participate in that Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday evening, uh, we have uh, an all-church prayer meeting. And what does all-church mean, by the way? All the church, yeah. That's all of us. Uh, we really want to encourage you to come for that. We spend time together. Uh, we'll be singing and uh, devotion and, and spending time in prayer. That is a vital uh, part of our of our ministry as a family together is to pray. Uh, we want to encourage you to do that. By the way, we have all church prayer meetings all year, uh, but this week is a special time uh, for us to gather. Encourage you to do that. Thursday is uh, an opportunity. Uh, we have a Passover Seder that Marty Wolf has done uh, for us the last few years. Uh, I encourage you to go to that. But there's one thing I just found out that all the tickets are sold. So if you're not signed up. Um, I don't know if we're going to have any scalpers here Thursday night or not. You, you may be out of luck. Um, but it's a great opportunity to, uh, to participate in that and learn some, some neat traditions and things that were done during that week. Uh, Friday, we're going to have a service together, a Good Friday service, a communion, and uh, that'll be Friday night at 7 o'clock. Uh, make sure to set time aside for that. And then on Sunday, Sunday morning, we'll have two, uh, two services, our sunrise service at 6.30. And my understanding is we're doing something a little special after that service. We're going to have some tamales uh, brought in um, and also some champarado, if I pronounced that right. Sorry if I <clears throat> gave it the gringo accent there, but um, it's a very good, uh, sort of like a hot chocolate uh, that we're going to have as well. So, so come and be a part of that uh, fellowship together. Then we'll have our normal services at uh, 9 and 10.45 after that. But again, I just want to encourage you, this is our week. Don't let the distractions and the normal activities of the week um, cause you to, to miss uh, the opportunity to, to celebrate um, what is for us such an important thing, what is an important thing for the world, uh, that Christ offered himself for our sins. Um, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And again, remembering the uh, Co and you family and also Fred Judkins lost his mother Velma a week ago on Saturday. So we want to remember to pray for uh, Judkins family as well. Let's go to the Lord. Oh, Father, you are kind and, and great God. And this, this week, Lord, Lord, we know every day is a day unto you. But this week is just, Lord, has such special significance to us as we reflect and remember um, what your son sacrificed on our behalf for your glory 
and part of your will. We thank you for that. Lord, may we um, just take special time this week and set it aside to, to offer you just additional thanks and gratitude. We pray too, Lord, for just the many on my heart and burden, Lord, for the many children uh, here that uh, that we have. And, and Lord, especially those of us as parents who have children who don't know you. I, I know there's just many of us who are burdened for our kids, uh, especially our grown children. I pray that you would be at work in their hearts and through your spirit open their eyes to the truth of the gospel that they would understand and that they would repent and believe. And Lord, we, we never lose hope in the power of your spirit to change hearts and we rely on him to do that. And we would ask on their behalf, God, that you would uh, save uh, these ones. And Lord, I just pray for our time now as we look into your word, that God, your spirit would move in us to understand it and to apply it, Lord, to uh, live it out. And we want to do that so that you would be pleased and you'd be honored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I remember um, in preaching class one day, it was one of my favorite professors, uh, Professor Montoya, and uh, he was doing one uh, one class on illustrations, sermon illustrations. And and as part of that uh, lecture, what he would do to help us <clears throat> grasp a little better is he, he went around the room just randomly picking up items off of the desks and, and basically asking, okay, what can you il- use this? How can you use this item to illustrate a truth from Scripture? And so he'd picking up a pencil or a pen or a guy's shoe. Uh, that was funny. He pulled his shoe off and held it up and backpack and various things. And the guys were responding very quickly. And they came up with uh, various ways those objects could be used to illustrate uh, truths from Scripture. And then he then he hel- holds up a Ziploc bag. He reached into a guy's lunch and pulled out a Ziploc bag. And he said, how about this one? And the room was silent. Nobody could think of anything. And then it came to me, ah, sealed by the Spirit. And uh, the professor smiled. The class actually applauded. And, you know, I was a hero that day. I figured out. But, you know, right after I said it, I thought in my mind, now, when in the world will I ever use that in a sermon illustration? Today's the day. (laughs) Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 talks about being sealed with the Spirit. So we're going to be looking today at that passage in particular. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We've been camped here in this uh, wonderful paragraph, a eulogy of praise to God for several weeks. Because there is so much here. It's such a rich passage. And we're spending time here because of the many truths that are shared. Paul later is going to give several applications of those truths. And how the principles that he has expressed in this uh, paragraph of praise can move us and motivate us and help us to apply the things that he talks about later. A big one in chapter 5 on marriage, as Greg talked about a little earlier uh, today. To rightly understand how to apply these things and to be motivated by them, we need to understand what Paul says here. This wasn't just a a nice paragraph that sounded kind of eloquent and flowery and worshipful, and Paul thought he would just throw it in here to, to start off his letter until he got to the really important stuff. No, this is the important stuff. And we're spending some time here on it so we could understand it better. So I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 3 again, and we'll read this through. I'm hoping that by the time we're done with this series, we've read it so many times, we'll we'll have it memorized, right? So it's such a great passage. Look with me, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, 
according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a viewed administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed with him, in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And as we've talked about with this paragraph, Paul's focus here has been on the Trinity and the Trinity's role in our salvation and, and praise for the blessings that we have been given as a result of that. Paul focuses on the Father in verses 3 through 6, uh, his choosing us uh, for adoption. He focuses then on the Son in verses 7 through 12 and his redemption through his precious blood. And then here in verses 13 and 14, Paul turns his attention on the role of the Holy Spirit and his involvement within our salvation. And the main focus in these two verses is the statement, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So this morning we're going to look at the ABCs of being sealed with the Spirit. We'll first look at the agent of the sealing. We'll look secondly at the blessings from the sealing. And finally, the conditions for the sealing. Did you catch that? Agents, blessing, conditions... A, B, C. All right, flame. Okay, well, hopefully it'll be easier for you to remember. Let's first look at the agent of the sealing, and that is the Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I think the Holy Spirit is the most misunderstood member of the Trinity. Many have this view of Him as an unseen force or a, a hidden uh, force or energy of God or some mysterious impersonal power. In fact, I've come across some songs about the Holy Spirit um, in, in my past that have termed and referred to Him as it. And uh, just showing a real lack of understanding there. He's not some mystical power. He is a member of the Trinity, fully God and being in essence, but also a distinct person, just as the Father is distinct and the Son is distinct. We see His deity in several places. You remember the whole incident with Ananias and Sapphira, right? where they had lied about the amount of the money that they had gotten from their property and said that they were giving all to the church. And then remember what Peter said to Ananias as he confronted him. He said, Ananias, uh, what, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. Right? Interchanging. The Holy Spirit is God. Before quoting Jeremiah, the preacher of Hebrews said in Jeremiah 10, 15, uh, Hebrews 10.15, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, saying, well, if you go back in Jeremiah to the verse he's referencing in Jeremiah 31, 33, it says there, Yahweh said, thus says Yahweh. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. I think this is the most direct statement about the the, uh, Holy Spirit's deity. It says there, now the Lord is the Spirit. Boom, right there. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 
But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. I don't think there could be a more direct statement, the deity of the Spirit. If we look in the, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, we see there that He is equal with the Father and the Son, right? Jesus said to baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's clearly fully God. But in addition to that, he's also a distinct person. The Holy Spirit demonstrates many examples of, of personality, of personhood, right? He can be grieved and saddened. He speaks. He exercises his will. He can be blasphemed against. He can be lied to. He loves. He has wisdom and knowledge. He intercedes in our prayers. Jesus always refers to him as he, never it. These are things that only a person does. And um, I'll, I'll put the verse references on our website and our application part in the sermon area there. But um, just wanted to give you a taste here of, of the Holy Spirit and, and who He is and what He does. He's called the Holy Spirit of promise in verse 13 because Jesus promised that He would come, that He and the Father would send the Spirit when Jesus ascended to be with the Father. And I am so glad they did. Because, you know, the Father and Son seem to get more attention in the Scripture, but the most active member of the Trinity in our lives and in the church is the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's doing much of the activity, particularly in our salvation. Listen to what the Bible says about His activity. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers people to serve. If you look in the book of Acts and, and those times when Peter and Stephen and Paul and others were preaching, it says they were full of the Holy Spirit. There are many times, even in the Old Testament, David was one who was full of the Spirit, oftentimes. Or you look in Judges, Othniel and, and uh, Samson and many others, they were empowered by the Spirit to do the things that they did. Bezalel, who built, several of the, who built the ark and several of the utensils within the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it says he was full of the Spirit. The Spirit empowers us to serve. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. The Holy Spirit is responsible for this book being written. It says in 2 Peter 1, he moved men by his power to write the inspired word of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings conversion. Titus 3, 5 says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives help and comfort. He's the one who places us in the body of Christ. He's the one who brings unity in the body of Christ. He is the one who gives us gifts to serve in the church. He is the one who brings assurance of salvation. He's the one who helps us understand God's word. He is the one who sanctifies us. He's busy. He's very busy. I like how Tom uh, or uh, Wayne Grudem, theologian Wayne Grudem, summed up uh, the Holy Spirit's activity by saying, it is the Holy Spirit who empowers purifies, reveals, and unifies. I don't know if he meant to rhyme it there, but, but it does. It's amazing the activity of the Holy Spirit. And if you want an in-depth study of, of uh, his, his person and his work, I would encourage you to go to our website. Jack did a wonderful study on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and it goes into a lot greater de- detail than I am this morning. But you can at least get an idea this morning, I hope, and a hint of all that is involved in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. He is so integral in our lives. I mean, if you think about it, do you realize without the Holy Spirit and and what He does and what He's doing, we would not be saved. 
Jesus made salvation possible, but it is the Holy Spirit who changes and converts us. He is the one who helps us understand the gospel. He is the one who moves us to respond. It's the Holy Spirit. If without him, we would not be any use in the body. We would not grow in Christ. We would not be able to have assurance. Our prayers would not be appropriate. Without the work of the Spirit, we wouldn't understand the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 talk about that. Without the Spirit active in our lives, we would have no true comfort or peace or joy. We wouldn't even be in the body of Christ. It is He who immerses or baptizes us into the church. And it's all these things that the Holy Spirit does. Can we not praise Him for all that He does in our lives? Can we not be thankful Praise the Father and Son for sending Him and praise the Spirit for all that He does. He is so vital to us. You know, this again, this is just a brief description. Paul here focuses on one aspect in particular of uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and describing Him as being a seal. He says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So let's look at that phrase for a minute in more detail. See, what does that mean? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is our seal? Well, it says there, firstly, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That means that it's a, that's a passive construction. That means it's not something we did. It's not some activity we pursued and thereby enabled our own ability to be sealed with the Spirit. It's something done to us. And notice there too, it says, with the Holy Spirit. That tells us the Holy Spirit is not the one who seals, but He is the sealing. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 says that it is the Father who seals us with the Spirit. There it says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Then the question becomes, well, what what is a seal? What is he talking about? It's obviously not that barking animal, right? It's something else that he's referring to here. Seals were used, I don't know if you've gotten them at times, a letter in the mail, you know, where you have the wax thing that's sticking the letter together and there's an impression upon it we i got one not long ago uh, i think it was for a wedding invitation it had the initial on the on the wax there very classy but you don't see that very much anymore but in biblical times seals had a variety of uses and functions they, they often were this wax that was melted on top of a document or something else and a person with a, a ring that had an emblem a signet ring would impress that emblem upon that seal and that's not what Happens so to us, right? When we get saved, it's not like a bunch of wax pours upon us and we get, you know, some, some painful stamp atop of our heads. It's obviously an analogy that he's referring to here. So it's important to understand what is the function of a seal and how was it used, particularly in Paul's day? Seals were, one purpose was to avoid tampering, right? If a king had written a letter or an edict or document and he had it sealed, he put his stamp upon the wax that closed that document and nobody was allowed to open it except to whom it was addressed. It avoided uh, tampering. You remember right when they rolled the stone over the Jesus' tomb, right? It says there that, that Pilate set a, a guard and they, uh, along, they made it secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Put it on the edge there. And it was not to be broken except under the authority of Pilate. Seals were also a sign of authority. They denoted authority because they represented the authority of the one who put the seal there. Now, there's an example of this. In uh, Esther 8.8, you know, when a document was sent with the seal of the king, no one had the authority to open that document except the one that who was addressed. King Ahasuerus said this to Mordecai in explaining this concept. He said, now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. 
Seals were also used to show that the letter was genuine, that the person who wrote the letter had his seal upon it so that you would know it really came from him. Seals were also used, and this is an important thing to understand, to identify ownership. You know, all these ideas are kind of related, but, but here the, it just has a sense of ownership. Uh, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, when God told him to go and buy a field, and he went and purchased it, and then he brought the, the deed before witnesses, and he signed it, and then it says he put his seal on it to show that he was the one who indeed owned that property for all to see that that was the case. But then what does it mean here that, that we are sealed by the Spirit? What does it mean that God seals us with the Holy Spirit? Well, essentially it is this. At salvation, the Holy Spirit not only changes your heart, He also comes to live within you, to indwell you. And that is the Father's seal. God's singular identifying mark that you are His, that He owns you, is the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. We are His. And when He changes us, when He immerses us in the church, He also comes to dwell within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Or Romans 8.9 says, However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Do you catch the connection there that Paul gives in that passage? The connection between the presence of the Holy Spirit within you and you being his property, him owning you, you being his possession? He says there, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. See, the Holy Spirit's presence within you is God's seal that you are his. You belong to him and nobody else. You are his possession. You are indeed a genuine child of God. The Holy Spirit's presence in your life is God's stamp of possession upon you. Paul reiterates this in Ephesians 1.14 when he says, We are God's own possession. Or 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for, come on, come with me here, people for what? God's own possession. It'll be easier next verse. Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself a people for God's own possession, zealous for good deeds. See, a ransom was paid by Jesus. Paid by Him to deliver your soul from slavery to Satan and to sin. To transfer you from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, to the kingdom of light. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. Believer, Jesus gave His life to purchase yours. And now you are God's possession, sealed with the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And I want to stop and think about that a minute. Just that idea of being God's possession. What are the implications of that? If you are God's, what does that mean? Being sealed as God's possession carries with it many encouraging blessings. I want to focus on just a couple of those. So let's look at that. Some of the blessings from being sealed. Stop again and think about it. Think about this concept of sealing. If God has his seal of ownership on you, then who can break that seal? Who has greater authority than God? Nobody, right? Who can revoke that seal? No one can take it off of that deed. 
No one is greater than God. Only, the only one that could do it is God himself. And he promised he never would, right? John 10, John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. My Father has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them from the Father's hand. You know, Jesus is saying there, my sheep are safe and they're protected. If you want to get at my sheep, you got to go through me and you got to go through my father. And that ain't going to happen. That isn't going to happen. Right. Jesus said a few verses earlier, I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you think he's going to go off that he went through during this week? Do you think he went through all that, laid down his life so that it'd be easy to let his sheep slip away? No, we are important to him. He did that. So that we would be in his hand, never to lose, he would never lose grip on us. First John 5.18 says of believers, God keeps, that is watches over, guards him, guards the believer, and the evil one does not touch him. And that word touch there isn't a slight grazing. I think a better translation would be to, to grab or to take hold of with the, with the motive to do harm. See, Satan wants you in his clutches. But as God's protection, you are secure, even from the most powerful created being in all the universe. Satan can't yank you away from God. Yes, he can tempt you. Yes, he can attack. Yes, he can bring harm. Yes, he can accuse. But he can never pull you from Jesus. He can never take control of you. Satan can never indwell you. He can never damn you to hell. He can never steal your soul. God keeps you. The evil one cannot touch you. God's hands are not greasy. You won't slip out. He has you firmly gripped. Is that not encouraging? Isn't that a comfort? I mean, think about that. To know that no matter what comes at you in this life, and and sometimes it does feel that way. Sometimes it does feel like God's hands must have oil in them or something because it feels like I'm slipping out of them. But that's never the case. He'll never lose his grip. God will never drop you. No one will ever steal you. You will never be lost. God's seal is upon you. You are His and you are secure. And that security should bring great assurance. I love what Romans 9 says about that, that how the indwelling Spirit, who is God's seal of His ownership, also moves us in our affection for God and gives us assurance and security that we are His. It says there in verse 15 of chapter 8, You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I mean, assurance and security, these are tremendous blessings being sealed with the Spirit. But there's another one that Paul mentions here, an even greater blessing. He says it in verse 14, that the Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Now, the word pledge there is uh, the word arabone. And I think this translation uh, doesn't quite capture its meaning because a pledge is something you might offer, uh, you know, to somebody that you would get back once the transaction is completed. But that's not the idea of the word here. The idea here is of a down payment, an installment, a deposit, an earnest. You know, like when you go to buy a house where... My wife and I are in the process of trying to do that right now. And when we make an offer, we also write out a check, a substantial one. Um, that check is the earnest money. 
That check is meant to communicate that we have a commitment to pursue purchasing this place. And if things are all signed off and escrow closes, that check then goes to the initial deposit for the home. And that's the idea here. The Holy Spirit isn't a pledge that's going to come and then go. He is a down payment. He is an installment. He is a deposit of more to come. The Holy Spirit is described as an earnest because He's a guarantee that the full amount will be paid. Now, if you think about it, the greater the earnest money, the more that you put down, doesn't that indicate a greater certainty that the transaction is going to happen, that the full payment will be made? I mean, if you put an earnest money down that's half worth half the value of the home, that would give a pretty good clue that you're confident and that you are certain you want to buy this place. Well, think about this. If the down payment of our eternal inheritance is the indwelling Holy Spirit, how certain and confident can we be that the full inheritance will come. Pretty much a guarantee, isn't it? Think about it. But just what is the inheritance? What is it? We hear it talked about a lot, and I think we kind of uh, default to the idea, well, it's going to heaven, it's eternal life in heaven. But is that the sum of it? And what does that mean? And how is the Holy Spirit connected to that inheritance if He is talked about and compared to a down payment or an installment? Well, what do you think of when you hear the word inheritance? What comes to your mind? person's inheritance is what? Money, right? Possessions, property that is typically given by a parent to their child. Unless that parent's one of those that has a bumper sticker on their RV that says, I'm spending my kid's inheritance. <clears throat> Apart from that group, uh, which I know none of you here are doing that, right? Um, this idea of inheritance, that is the idea in Scripture, is that it was uh, your possessions, your property, your belongings that you would pass on to your son so that he would carry on the, the family business, so that he would carry on the, uh, the, the attachment to that property and then pass it on to his children and so on. And that's the idea often in, in Scripture. And we see that principle in Romans eight fifteen that makes the connection. If we are children of God, then heirs, namely heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's in verse 17. If we're his adopted children, then that by default means we're his heirs. That's why it's so important when we talked about that earlier in chapter 1 of Ephesians, that he adopts us. Because as part of that, then we now have an expectation as his son or daughter to receive an inheritance. And I like how Puritan uh, Thomas Goodwin uh, had asked this question about that. He said, if great men give inheritances answerable to their greatness, what inheritance then will God give? That's a good question. I mean, we see that in the world today. And what kind of inheritance is Bill Gates' daughter going to receive? I don't know if you read this week, he spent something like a million dollars this year uh, in pursuit of, uh, of her hobby, of, of a sport that she's involved in. million bucks. That's quite a club do, I tell you that. But just imagine, if he's willing to spend that amount for a sport for his daughter, how much is her inheritance? Or J. Paul Getty, you know, the endowment that he left for the arts. You know, they built this huge structure on the most prominent hill in Los Angeles. cost something like $1.3 billion. They still have billions in the bank. You know, when the Getty Trust shows up at an auction, everybody else pretty much gets up and leaves. It's like, we can't compete with these guys. They have so much money. You know, Getty and, and Gates, uh, Warren Buffett. I mean, if you were to take their wealth and, and the wealth of all the wealthiest people in the world and put it together, how would that compare to the wealth of God? You know, it's like a particle compared to mountains of God's riches. 
But, you know, thinking about our inheritance, does Jesus' statement in John 14, 2, where he said he's preparing a dwelling place for us, does that mean that, that God is setting aside some lakeside property for you and for me, and there's a Lamborghini parked in the parking lot, a nice house, you know, a yacht out on the lake, all-you-can-eat coupons to, uh, to uh, China Buffet over there on, on uh, Reseda? You know, is that, is that what it is? Is this idea of an inheritance made up of stuff that, you know, I can't have it now or as much as I want, but boy, in heaven, I'm going to get it in full. You know, I can't afford a Lamborghini now, except I got a little picture. I can't afford a real thing, but, you know, in heaven, I'm going to get one of those. I can't afford a nice house now, but in heaven, I'll have one. I can't eat all that I want now, but I can in heaven. I don't have much time to pursue the hobbies that I like, but I will in heaven. Is that the perspective? Is that what is meant by our inheritance? That, you know, it's kind of like a retirement. You know, heaven's my eternal retirement. You know, I'm busy down here, but someday I'm just going to rest and enjoy all the things that I really want. Is that the focus? Think about yourself. What is it that you look forward to in heaven? Ultimately. You know, Islam... Heaven's described for the most dedicated men, they will have 70 virgins that will serve and meet their every desire and need. You know, Mormonism talks about heaven as, a, as your own planet to own and to rule. Both of these wrong and completely self-serving. But you know, as I think about American Christianity and uh, many Christians in their view of heaven, I don't think it's a whole lot different. We have a very materialistic perspective I think, at times of heaven. We see it as a place that, that, that we can feed our materialistic desires and cravings for stuff, for created things, for, for comfort, for entertainment. That, Like I said, heaven is like, a, is like my eternal uh, retirement. But is our inheritance a stockpile of possessions? Is that what the Holy Spirit is a down payment of? A stuff? Turn to Revelation 21 for a minute. I want you to to see a depiction of our inheritance that the Apostle John gives. He was given a a vision of the future and of the eternal state. And and here in Revelation 21, he describes a picture, a picture of what that looks like. And it's in that picture we will see some clues as to our inheritance, particularly the main inheritance. Again, I'll be starting in verse 1 of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no longer any death There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write for these things, write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Right? We see here that in the new heaven, right? No suffering, no death, no mourning, no pain, no tears, no grief. All of them gone. All of that is gone. And 
and the new Jerusalem, our future dwelling place that comes down from heaven to earth, is described as a, as a bride coming to her groom. But these are only a part. Did you catch what it said in verse 3, also at the end of verse 7? What is the main inheritance that's spoken of here? Let me read verse 3 again. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear. What's the core blessing here? What is the great inheritance that awaits? God Himself, isn't it? What is it that God says here? The overwhelming riches of heaven that we are made heirs with Christ is that we get God, right? God says here, I will be among you. I will dwell with you. I myself will live with you. You will be my sons and I will be your God. Listen, brothers and sisters, things are not the best part of our inheritance. God is. God is, is he not? The reason that there's no sorrow or pain or tears or grief isn't that we're going to have all the stuff we ever wanted in life and that we can be satisfied in those things that I can eat all the pizza I want, that that the lake I'm at is going to be full of fish, that I can finally drive that sports car I always wanted. That's not the greatest riches of heaven. The greatest riches are eternal bliss and unhindered fellowship with God. That is why you aren't going to be sad anymore. What does Psalm 16 say? In His presence is fullness of Joy, right? In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Not because of what's in his hand, but because it is his hand. Big difference. Yes, there'll be many blessings there. I'm not saying there's not going to be stuff up there. God enjoys blessing us in those ways. But they are mere extensions of our relationship with him. We can't forget that. The grand inheritance of the universe is that unhindered fellowship with God as his child. Paul describes the Holy Spirit here as a a down payment of our inheritance. I think because what he's saying is the, the Holy Spirit's presence in you now is just a small part, a taste of what's in store for you in the future. He is the down payment. His presence gives you an understanding or idea of what we've been waiting for in eternity or what we are waiting for in eternity. I think the picture that some people get of of the work of the Trinity in our salvation is we kind of see the Trinity as God before time and then in human history he kind of divides himself up and he he does these various things and and, when we come to the point where we get saved the Holy Spirit changes us, he converts us, he saves us then he indwells us to help us with our trials and our struggles and our, our struggles with sin and he equips us to serve in the church and then when we get to heaven the Trinity kind of goes back into its own thing again and and we are now you know independently in this eternal bliss. Holy Spirit did his work while we're here on earth. And, and once we get to heaven, he's done. We're on our own, right? We need some help down here, but in heaven, we're fine. I don't think that's the idea here. He's a down payment. He's an installment because he's going to remain. What we experience in part or just a taste of now, we will experience in full in eternity. The Holy Spirit will be able to work unhindered, unfettered by our sin, by quenching him. He won't have to deal with our flesh. That'll be done away with so that we can experience his, his, experience his work in full. We see this idea in Romans eight twenty two, 
where it says we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves also having the first fruits of the spirit. Even we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. See, there he calls uh, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit as the first fruits. Uh, same idea as a down payment. He's the first of a great harvest to come. We're getting part of it now. Part of that harvest, part of that inheritance. And it's just the beginning. Somebody once asked me, what is the Holy Spirit going to be doing in heaven now that his work, his work at that time will be done on earth? Uh, that, that's a good question. And I think Paul gives us a clue to the answer here. Is that he will continue to do what he is doing here. But it will be complete and perfect. You see, the indwelling of the Spirit, which begins at salvation, just as eternal life begins at salvation, won't stop in glory, but will continue into eternity. Think about that. Can you imagine the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives without any hindrance at all? I mean, think about it. Though now you experience a little bit, a taste of the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, in eternity, that will never stop. It won't be, uh, it'll never end. You will continue to have love, joy, peace, and all of those things. They won't end. And though now there's conflict and disharmony, it abounds in the church, it abounds in our homes. In heaven, in in the eternal inheritance, we'll have perfect unity. That one right there's, I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? I mean, my own sin causes so much damage. I'm so thankful for the day when the Spirit will work in us perfect unity among one another, never to have conflict, never to have fighting, never to sin against one another. Here our affections for God are divided. They're distracted. In eternity, we'll have unending affection for the Father. And as the Spirit cries out within us, now, Abba, Father, we'll have a louder, clearer, perfect voice in heaven. We are His children. He, here our service to one another is incomplete. It's inconsistent. In eternity, we will, be, we will be without flaw or end. We will perfectly serve one another all the time. Here the Bible isn't fully clear to us. Our knowledge is defective. Our minds are corrupt in their understanding. But in eternity, we will have full illumination. That illumination is the work of the Spirit that now is in part, but in heaven will be in full. Here we lack assurance. We have doubts about our faith, but there, complete assurance that He loves us and that we love Him. That statement I love at the end of verse 7 of Revelation 21. I will be your God and you will be my son. Right now our fellowship with God is hindered, but in eternity, no hindrance. And I could go on. The point is, is the work of the Holy Spirit begun at salvation will be completed in heaven and it will continue. It will never stop. All the blessings that that we have a taste of now here in this life will be given to their full extent. Think about that. What great blessings we have from being sealed with the Spirit. Let's take a moment just to look at the third point in our outline. That is the conditions for the sealing. I've kind of jumped around in this passage a little bit because I first wanted to focus on the main sentence, which is you were sealed with the Spirit. And then talk about, in verse 14, the blessings that come about from that. But let's go back to verse 13 at the beginning. Paul, uh, through the inspiration of the Spirit, inserts two other verbs, listening and believed. 
to make a point there. Let me read verse 13 again. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. See, those other two verbs there, listening and believed, are, are participles. That is, they aren't the main action, but they support the main action. They're subordinate to the, to the main verb being sealed. And participles can be used to indicate how the sealing took place, or the reason for the sealing, or the cause of the sealing, or the timing, or the sequence of the action. And I'm not going to go into all the grammatical reasons here, but, but just to summarize, listening and believing here do describe the reason for the sealing and happen at the time of the sealing. They're not separate events that you, you listen and believe, you hear the gospel and you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then sometime later you are sealed. No, it happens at the moment of belief. It happens when you are saved, when your heart is changed. I like how the ESV uh, translated, translates it here. It says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You know, some of your Bibles may have after listening or after hearing. That would communicate this idea of a difference between when the, the listening and believing occurred and the sealing. But, but I think we need to take it just like every other activity of the Spirit in terms of the indwelling, the baptizing us into His body, and sealing. Those all take place when you get saved. Otherwise, how could Paul in the past tense say here, you were sealed? How would he know that every believer that he's writing to there did not have that sealing of the Holy Spirit? I think it is clearly something that takes place in the past. Or, excuse me, something that takes place at salvation. But timing aside, I think we can't miss an important truth here. And that is that that hearing the gospel and believing it are conditions for being sealed with the Spirit. They are prerequisites for being saved. They are the requirements to have the eternal inheritance that is promised to believers. Jesus often said, In regards to listening, he said, he who has ears to hear, let him what? Hear. And he wasn't talking there just about, you know, are you able to make out the sounds that I'm making and understand the words that I'm saying, right? He's saying, you need to be listening with a willingness to respond. And that's the kind of listening that Paul is talking about here. Hearing the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of Christ with an ear with a desire, with a willingness to respond. And that response is called faith, belief, right? To be sealed, you must have a listening that leads to believing. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, right? Whoever calls, whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Right? Paul makes that connection of, of hearing, of listening, and then believing. And he says in verse 17, Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. To be saved and, and sealed, you must hear the word of Christ, the true gospel. And it must be with a willingness to listen. Some of you in this, here this morning have heard this a lot. You've heard the gospel a lot. But I think for some, we need to ask ourselves, have I been listening? Have I had ears to hear? Is there really a willingness on my part to respond in belief to that message? Do I trust Jesus? Do you believe in the sacrifice that He made on the cross for your sins? 
That it's the only way to salvation. That it is the only way to receive that internal inheritance. That it is the only way to be right with God. It is the only payment for sin that God has offered. There is no other. Do you believe that? You know, the, the way we can truly know, ultimately, I think, if we have listened and believed that it's a genuine faith or not, is whether or not the Holy Spirit is active in our lives. Is the Holy Spirit within you? Do you have that seal upon you? Right? If He is in you, then you will see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You will see love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you will have an affection for God that the Spirit gives. Remember that He causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, and to testify that we are His child. If the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, you will grow in your desire for the Bible and in your understanding of it. If He is in you, you will serve in the body. You will use the gifts that He has given. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You will have a security that you have a relationship with Him. Again, not all of these things are going to be experienced perfectly. But we will have a taste. There should be some evidence at some point and even now that these things are going on in your life. That is how you will know if you've listened or believed. But if you don't see these things, if you make an honest evaluation of where you're at, you need to ask yourself, is the Holy Spirit really within me? Do I have God's seal of ownership upon me? Or maybe you're in a situation where you're confident that that you have listened, that you have believed, but maybe you're quenching God's spirit from working in your life because of sin or or because perhaps you've been so consumed by a trial or circumstance or situation that you're focused solely on that and you're not spending time with the Lord. If you're not listening to his spirit as he speaks through his word, you won't see him at work within you. But if you have, if you do have the seal of the Holy Spirit, if you dwell in His Word, and as you pray, as you spend time with Him, as you fellowship with other believers, as you commit yourself to serve others in the body of Christ, as you use the gifts that the Spirit has given you, as you flee temptation, you will see God work at you, and you'll get that taste of heaven. you get that taste, that, that, that little bit that, that God has allowed for now. You can experience that now. Experience the the wonder, the beauty, and the encouragement of seeing God's Spirit work within you. Do you want that? Then flee every sin and distraction. Flee every temptation. Spend time with Him. We talk about that a lot, but, but that's what it is. It's spending time with Him, and the Spirit will work through His Word. Look at the end of verse 14. Paul concludes his eulogy in the phrase with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Other translations have until the redemption of God's own possession. That statement conveys something here, and it's important to see this. Paul is coming to a close in verse uh, 14, not only of this principle and the role of the Holy Spirit and being uh, sealed with him, but also the entire paragraph. He's coming to a close with this statement until or with a view to or with the purpose of or with the goal of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. You see, this phrase serves as an end not only to the blessing of being sealed, but also all the other blessings that he's talked about in this section here. The sealing, along with the choosing, the adoption, redemption, inheritance, everything here is done toward the goal of the redemption of God's own possession. 
And like Ed talked about last week, I think it bears repeating again this morning, especially because Paul is bringing up here at the end of this section. Our salvation was not the end which God was seeking to achieve. It was a means to an end. That's the point of the refrain, right? We should be very familiar with it by now. To the praise of His glory, to the praise of the glory of His grace, to the praise of His glory, which is exactly how he ends it here in verse 14. He's making a point to us here again that describing the Father and choosing us for adoption, the Son and redeeming us through His blood and our being sealed in the Spirit was all done to the praise of His glory. We receive unbelievable blessing and salvation. No doubt. Praise God for that. Paul's extolling the Lord here for that, and we need to as well. We need to be so thankful and grateful and bless God for how He has richly blessed us. But we have to remember, don't let you become the focus of your salvation. Don't let you become the focus as you consider God's saving work in your life. The thrust of Paul's statement here in Ephesians 1 is to consider your salvation, to be grateful for it and thankful for it, so you'll be moved to honor and glorify God. That's the purpose for which he saved you. He saved you so that you could be restored and made clean and righteous, so that you could stand before him without guilt or shame or be in his holy presence, so that you could offer him praise. So that you could one day, with creation, bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, You are Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why He has saved. That's why He has provided forgiveness for sacrifice so that we could stand before Him to the praise of His glory. It's so important to see this. There's a song um, called Above All. We've sung it here many times. It's a worshipful song. It, it rightly declares Jesus is above all. It, it wonderfully extols Jesus for His sacrifice for us on our behalf. But, but there's one word in that song, one word that misses it, one word that needs to be changed because that word puts the focus in the wrong place, in the wrong person in God's plan of salvation. It's found in the chorus. Crucified, laid behind a stone, you live to die. Rejected and alone, like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. And that chorus was, was great till the end. You took the fall and thought of me above all. Was that Jesus' foremost thought as he hung there? And again, I enjoy much of this song, but I think that one statement reveals a problem in our culture. I think that one word really indicates to us, you know, we really have an anthropocentric or or man-centered view of our salvation. We really see it as all about me, that the focus of the cross was me, that all Jesus could think of as he was hanging there was me. You know, our gospel needs to be theocentric. It needs to center around God. Paul calls it in Romans 1, God's gospel, God's good news. It is good news about him and for him and from him and to his glory. Ephesians 1 says multiple times, the goal of our salvation again is to the praise of God's glory, not ours. It wasn't me that Jesus thought of above all. Yes, Jesus loves us with an infinite love. We'll see that later in Ephesians 3, that we would understand the depth and the breadth and the height of Christ's love for us. Indeed, He gave Himself up for us in love. 
I'm not questioning that at all. But ultimately, he hung upon the tree so that through our redemption, God, his father, would be glorified. In the garden, did he not say, not my will, Father, but yours? I'm going to go through this, God, because of you. You've called me to do this. Through your spirit is strengthen and empower me to do it. And I'm going to do it because I want to obey and follow your will, Father. You know, when he hung upon that cross, he took the fall for the Father. He thought of, of thee above all, not of me. And our salvation is a tribute to the greatness of God's grace. It's a tribute to the greatness of His kindness, of His justice, not to our own, unworth- to our own worthiness to be saved. And we just have to be careful with that. Let us echo with Paul here. As we consider our salvation, where does Paul direct his attention? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let us echo that with him so that we would be to the praise of his glory, that we would be his possession. That is why he has saved you and me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I know my words have been inadequate. uh, But God, I pray that it is your word, your spirit would work and has worked and will work through your word to bring about a genuine desire to honor and praise you. And Lord, we are so grateful that you have saved us. And Lord, we don't want to take that beautiful gift and, and abuse it or or magnify it beyond what you intended it to be, which was forgiveness so that we may stand before you to worship you with a clean heart so that you would be rightly honored as you created us to do. And Lord, I do pray if there is anyone in here that that Lord is, uh, knows that they don't know you or maybe thinks that they have, but they wonder, they haven't seen the Spirit work in their life, I pray that you would uh, use your word here to bring about conviction, that you would give them ears to hear and open their hearts to receive, as you did with Lydia, so that they might repent and commit their life to follow you. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for shedding your blood that we might be redeemed, for purchasing us. Lord, from the clutches of Satan, and now he can't grab us out of your hand. We're so grateful to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. May you be honored as we celebrate your death and burial and resurrection this week. Lord, help us to do all things to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen.